Encouragement of the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. He said, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. Let's pray together as we hold forth this word of life. Our gracious and eternal Heavenly Father, once more we come before thy throne of grace. Once more we come before thee, seeking in earnest petitions that you would be faithful to speak to us this evening, that thy Holy Spirit might fill this place and might be overflowing each heart, that we can rest in the confidence that it is not man who speaks, but it is through the unction of thy spirit. And for this we will give thee all the thanks, praise, glory, and honor for which thou alone art worthy. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to the minor prophet in the Old Testament, Nahum. The prophet Nahum. We'll read together from chapter 1, the book of Nahum. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. God is jealous. The Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and in the clouds, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea, he maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof, and darkness shall pursue his enemies. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they be drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down when he shall pass through. 
Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst the bonds in sunder. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. Out of the house of thy gods will I cut off the graven image, and the molten image. I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feast, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. The burden of Nineveh, prophecy, a vision of the great prophet Nahum. What do we know of Nineveh? It reminds us of Jonah, does it not? Jonah visited these people some 150 years before this prophecy was uttered. And Jonah urged them to repent, and indeed they did. They repented, the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was a capital city of a great, great world power called Assyria. And what do we know about Assyria? Syria was a major, in fact, the world power for much of its existence and existed many centuries in the Middle East. Assyria was known as a most vicious, cruel, and wicked nation. They glorified war. Assyria devoured their enemies ravagely. They were the first to perfect the horse-drawn chariot in, in battle. They were the first to use iron in their weaponry. They were ruthless. When they conquered a nation, those they didn't totally devour in death, they took as captives, they took away into other lands, their leaders, they tortured and mutilated. They made mockery of the leaders and the gods of other nations. This is what this nation was. And this, beloved, is a prophecy that was written condemning that great nation of Assyria, that Nineveh would fall. The books more specifically, the book of life will be opened. But before it is opened, dear ones, make no mistake, the wrath of God will be poured out after the final onslaught of the forces of darkness. And the judgment that we read of Nineveh in this book, in this prophecy of Nahum, is a foreshadow, I think of what will happen to the enemies of God and of his people. Nineveh was a great city. Nineveh was a walled city. Its walls were 100 feet high, if you can imagine. And on top of the 100-foot-high walls, which stretched eight miles by three miles around this vast city, 
were towers another hundred feet high. The, the city was surrounded by a moat, 100 feet wide by some 60 feet deep. And Nineveh came to an utter end. It was impenetrable by man, but not by God. You see, the nation of Assyria taunted the Lord God Jehovah and taunted him just one too many times. And there was great judgment that came to them because of that, and this is what we have read. What happens to a nation that taunts the Lord God Almighty? I think this tells us. This prophecy was written, scholars believe, maybe 50 years before the actual event. And we read in this prophecy together that the floods would come up. And you know, that's exactly how this great walled city fell. Exactly as Nahum prophesied. Because it wasn't man that could penetrate those walls. In fact, it was God that we now know from history bringing a massive flood upon the city of Nineveh which breached the walls and allowed the enemies to enter into the city. And as we read, the end of this city was utter, complete. In fact, historians, those who mocked the Bible, used this account to say there was never such a city of Nineveh. No one has ever found it. And that was not until the middle of the 19th century that they finally found it, proving these events correct. And I only stress that to say the Bible is truth. God will avenge his enemies. God will avenge the enemies of his people. There will be judgment. Judgment will come. Because God is in control. One of the artifacts that they found when the archaeologists dug in that area of the Middle East and they discovered this great city of Nineveh, was a panel upon the wall of the palace. And one of the kings said this. He said, All lands convulse, writhe, and melt as a furnace before me. And I wonder if that king right now is writhing in hell for taunting the Lord God. We read that in in 2 Kings, how they surrounded the walled city of Jerusalem, remember the story? And, and the, the, uh, the king of Assyria sent a messenger out who called out to the, the children of Judah there inside the walls of Jerusalem and taunted them and taunted their God. And it wasn't long thereafter that this judgment occurred. We also know that Isaiah prophesied that night that a defeat would come up upon this vast uh, enemy army. In fact, it did. Many thousands and thousands of soldiers were corpses in the morning, and the army withdrew. The judgment of God is sure. God will not condone a nation that takes his name in vain. Dear ones, The Lord has laid a message upon my heart. I believe that we are besieged 
today, much like Judah was, with the Syrian army at the gates, surrounding the walls, the most vicious, the most ruthless, the most evil enemy known of the day. And that's exactly what I believe we have today. And who is that enemy? Do we recognize this enemy that is before us? It is an enemy that is subtle, at times almost imperceptible. The forces of Satan are behind this enemy that besieges us today. And by us, I mean our nation. I mean, I also mean we as a church and Christianity. Dear ones, the enemy. The enemy is our culture. You see, I believe we have a war that's being waged today, every day, in our land. For the hearts and souls of our people. Nineveh was nicknamed by its adversaries the robber city, the robber city, because they would relish, enjoy their taking the people of their enemies captive and totally um, robbing the wealth of other nations and taking it for their own. And the enemy that we face today is robbing our children of their youth, of their innocence, robbing us of our clarity of mind and heart and thinking. And what do I mean by culture war that's being waged? Culture war is a term that you can read about. Sociologists are writing about today. And it's a phenomenon that really involves the fact that today there is what is called moral relativism. And there is a great debate that rages in our land as to this notion of, is there truth or not? And if there is no truth, then our opinions with respect to and our ideas and our thinking and our, our beliefs as a people as it relates to religion, to family life, to school curriculum, to governments and organizations of people is all relative. A great champion of the culture war that is about us is those who espouse humanism. Humanism is a belief structure that replaces the supernatural with reason. It's a belief in tolerance, optimism, and hope. It all sounds very good. And it's attracting a great following in our current culture. to speak a moment for those in the audience who can remember back to the 1960s. Many of us can. 
An illustration of this culture war, I think, is considering this. What was the definition of a family in 1960? Well, most importantly, was there any debate about what a family was in night? No, there was no debate. Not even questioned. It was a man called the husband and a woman called the wife and possibly children. That was the family. What is the definition of a family today? We know in this world of broken homes, homosexual marriage, cohabitation, those who champion moral relativism will teach us that that's normal. They'll teach us that that's healthy. They'll teach us that that's proper in a pluralistic society. And we see this on the television, in the newspapers, books being written about this, commentaries, editorials. You see the debate raging, I hope, because it's a war. In 1960, think about religion for a moment. Those of us that can can remember that. Religion was a positive influence on society. It was something to be encouraged. What is it today? The radical, extreme secularists in our society want to remove the Ten Commandments from public viewing. They want to take the manger scenes down at Christmas time. That's not proper. That's not showing tolerance. That's not showing a respect for diversity. Religion is bashed. Religion is considered, in fact, in Great Britain, there was a survey that was conducted not long ago, and a majority of the people in England stated that they felt that religion was a social evil, quote and unquote, a social evil. That's in our day and age in which we live, dear ones. If you don't believe there's a culture war, if you don't believe that the army of the enemy is besieging the city, think again. And I could go on with many, many examples, and you perhaps are thinking of some even right now, that reinforce the notion that there's a culture war happening. And why should we care? We're saved. Our names are written in the book. We just heard the teen choir singing about a time when we're going to be in heaven. We can't wait for our feet to lift off the ground and leave this dirty, old, wicked world behind. So should we care? Does it matter to us? We know there will be judgment upon those who are the enemies of God. Do you care? In fact, do you see it? In fact, I think one very common response to the culture war is it really doesn't affect me. I'm living my life the way I would like to live it and let the secularists and the moral relativists have this old world. Dearly beloved, are we equipped for battle? Have you thought about the battle that's raging out there and are you, am I, equipped to meet it? I dare say that we're not. I dare say that the evidence supports 
the fact that we're not ready for the battle that's out there. Just in June, just last month, there was another survey published. It garnered quite a bit of publicity, so you probably saw it. It was a survey that was conducted by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, survey of 35,000 Americans about their views on religion. And here's what they found. 92% of the respondents believe in God. Wow, 92% believe in God. Well, that might be an encouraging start. Well, let's peel the onion back a little bit on the survey. 74%, however, responded that they believe in eternity. Okay, so only 74% of the respondents believe in, in eternity. So not all of those that believe in God don't have the same concept, certainly, that you and I do. 63% believe that the scriptures are the word of God. Now that sounds pretty good, but the respondents were of all sorts of religious persuasion, so that could include, of course, the, those who are Muslim saying that they believe that the Quran is the inspired word of God and so forth. So 63% of Americans believe that the scriptures are the word of God. Now here's the shocking one. One in four Roman Catholic and mainline Protestants, one in four, 25%, doubt the existence of God. They profess to be a mainline Protestant or Roman Catholic, but yet doubt the existence of God. Just a couple more. And this is what I think is shocking. 83% of the mainline Protestants who were surveyed responded that they believe there are multiple paths to salvation. 57% of those who said they were evangelicals stated that they believed there were multiple paths to, to salvation. The analysis? Most individuals in our country think the truth can be what they want it to be. And that is precisely the war that's raging today. The culture war that's raging. There no longer is respect for, understanding of, belief in the absolute bedrock truth of Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So what is our response? Are we prepared for battle? I venture to say we're perhaps not. I venture to say some of us, perhaps in this auditorium, and I'm speaking much more broadly, however, are rather comfortable in our culture. In fact, we're probably like that proverbial frog, you know, that you put on, in the pot on top of the stove and start to turn up the heat, and it just keeps swimming around in there doesn't actually realize what's happening until it's too late and he perishes. In fact, that's what the insidiousness of the enemy in his subtle way can do. He doesn't come with heavy 
chains to bind us, but with a fine silken thread that we cannot see, and we are bound. And the culture is binding us. What are examples of being comfortable in a culture? What are evidences of that? Have you stopped to think? Have we caught ourselves sitting in our living room watching a sitcom and laughing hilariously at, at a situation on that, that uh, program that might have some innuendo, sexual innuendo, or promoting some um, homosexual agenda or whatever it is that you know, these, these programs are promoting these days. Do we bring that in to our very living rooms? Are we, in a sense, condoning that culture? Does it shock us when we see that? Do we look right past it? Are we numb, like the frog, <laughs> to the heat that's increasing about us? Another response might be, we are overwhelmed with what we're seeing to the point that we want to run and hide. We are overwhelmed to the point that we want to close our eyes and go away. We want the Lord to come today. Well, we do, and that's not wrong. But is that how the culture is affecting us? If so... I submit that that's as bad as being enculturated, as being numb to the culture, as being as swimming in the same pond, if we just close our eyes. Because you see, a, a third option to confronting the culture wars that we see out there, a third option might be to be a, alert, to be awake, to be on guard and seek opportunities to be all about sowing seeds of the truth wherever we go, being all about brightening the corner where we are, being all about changing the, 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 the culture in which we live, where we live, to the extent that we can. Jesus had a lot to say about that, I believe, when just before he departed this earth, was crucified, he prayed to his father, what we like to call the high priestly prayer. And he prayed this to the father. He said, speaking of his disciples, I have given them thy word. And the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth, as thou hast sent me into the as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into 
the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. And let me read one more verse, because this is where it hits home. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus did not take us from the world. He did not snatch up those early believers out of this life, but left us here so that through us we can be his eyes and ears and feet and hands and touch the world about us for the sake of the cross. And as we take the Great Commission and we go out and we talk to others about Christ, we are helping to turn that culture one person at a time. One person at a time. But I think it goes beyond that, dear ones, and not to minimize the Great Commission and our need to propagate the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what we need to be all about. It goes beyond that from the standpoint that we all have opportunities where we work, where we live, perhaps if we're in school, perhaps um, there are other networking that we may have. Can we effectuate a change in the culture there? If you've been given the opportunity to work with and perhaps be in a supervisory capacity over certain people, are you helping to change the culture in that environment? one that stands for the principles of truth and righteousness. I'm reminded of my, my daughter uh, and um, Sister Sonia Spellman, who in their little community formed a mom's group. And they were the ones who brought it together, and there is a Christian underpinning to everything they do in their activities. It's subtle, though. It's not in their face, but it's gathering the mothers in the community that's helping to change the culture in that little community. And I challenge us to look for those kinds of opportunities where they exist. Be aware, be alert, and be awake. For the, for the, the, the enemy is raging out there, and he is robbing the hearts and souls of people, robbing our children of their innocence. We need to be an army for the Lord in this dark age and time in which we live. Because judgment is coming upon this world. Judgment is coming soon upon the enemies of the cross. And now is the time. Now is the time to, to make an impact for Christ and for the kingdom. Nahum. You know what the name means? It's interesting. I just read the first chapter. You need to read the whole book. Stinging indictment against the Assyrian people and against the city of Nineveh. And God spared nothing in pouring out his wrath upon these people. Nahum means comfort. So when we talk about judgment upon this world, when we talk about God pouring out his wrath, we, dear ones, can be comforted. Can be comforted to know 
that God does avenge his adversaries. And he reserves his wrath for our enemies. And that day is coming. And so we can be comforted in that, knowing that that is going to happen ultimately. But dear ones, the opportunity now is now. The opportunity is before us to be out in the world, as Jesus said, making a change for the good in this culture in which we live. See some themes in, in Nahum that are prophetic also to end times. Now, I don't believe that, that Nahum is an end time prophet, and I stand to be corrected there. I don't, I've not read that he is, but there certainly are very stark themes here that point to a time when the book will be opened. And so it should make us think, as we read about this judgment, that that time is coming very soon. When those seals will be opened, and as we read in the Revelation, that first, Satan and his army will be unleashed upon, one last time upon this world. But then, God will avenge those as we've, as we've talked about, who are his enemies and the enemies of his children. And where we read this in chapter 6 of Revelation, and the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the, in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come. And as Nahum said, who can stand? Who can stand? So what is our application as we think about this? First, be comforted. Second, live victoriously. Know that the victory has been won. Know that we don't have to be praying for victory. Oh, Lord, bring us victory. No, victory was on the cross 2,000 years ago when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he said, It is finished. It is accomplished. Victory was won for you and for me. Live, dear ones, victoriously. Live alertly, aware, and awake, for the end is coming soon. I was encouraged, very encouraged, by a discussion with a young brother this week who asked me, um, when you were my age, did you also see that things were kind of close to the end? And I just smiled to myself because I remember his age asking somebody of the preceding generation that very same question. And I told him, as a matter of fact, yes. And as a matter of fact, my grandmother told me that she was absolutely certain that she would be alive when the Lord came back. And she said, added quickly, and if not I, certainly your grandfather. (laughs) 
Well, that was many, many years ago, and Jesus has not come back yet. But time seemed very ripe then. And the point is, it's unbelievable how ripe they appear today, just looking back in my lifetime. So especially young ones, take heart and be encouraged and take great comfort that our redemption draweth nigh. So live victoriously. And live with hope. Live with hope. You know, hope is a matter of perspective. Many times when we look around and see the environment in which we live and the circumstances in which we are, we get beat down and we see no light at the end of the tunnel. We see no hope at all. My grandfather, the very same one who was going to be alive when Jesus came. He went to his rest many, many years ago. But he told me a story of hope that I'll share with you. He was imprisoned for his faith, like, like many, many others in, in our church family. And his sentence was given to him as a life sentence. And um, he was telling me the story of this. And he stopped and he said, Mark, the happiest day in my life, he had a big grin on his face, the happiest day in my life was when they came in and said, your sentence has been reduced to 30 years. <laughs> that was the happiest day of his life. Why? Because it gave him, at that moment, when he was in the depths of despair, <laughs> deprived of the freedom that we take so for granted of just coming in and going out, at that very moment, they gave him hope. They knew, he knew he was going to be out of there eventually. And dear ones, we should live with hope today. I understand what it feels like to want to put the blinders on or the blindfold on and move to some small island somewhere and get away from all of this nonsense that we see in this world. We can't do that. We're not called to do that. But we should live with hope and an understanding of our position in Christ and the freedom that it brings. Reminded of what, the, what uh, Apostle Peter said, how we should live in hope. And let me just read that to us. He said this, Blessed uh, be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed, ready to be revealed in the last time. So how should we live? Oh, with great hope, with great confidence in our expectation of the return of Jesus Christ. And not just keeping that hope within our breasts, but to make that a living, or rather a lively hope, wherever we go, the lives we touch, in our community, in our churches, at camp. A lively hope and a knowledge that Jesus is coming soon as it's revealed 
in the last time. For those outside of Christ who may be in this auditorium this evening, know with great assurance that as Nahum prophesied the judgment against Nineveh, and it came true 50 years later to a T, know with great assurance, with absolute clarity, that judgment is coming. You see, what precedes that book, the book of life being opened, is that judgment that will be poured out upon this earth. And know with great assurity that judgment will happen. And also know with great assurity the fierceness of God's wrath against those who oppose him, against those who oppose his son, and against those who oppose his children. Those who reject, whether it be open and blatant as the kings of Assyria, or whether it be a subtle, I'll get around to that tomorrow, the end result is the same. But also know that, as Nahum said, God is slow to anger. You see, he gave Nineveh a chance. And they did repent. Remember the story? This is the very same nation, the very same city that repented in sackcloth and ashes. Those names, dear ones, were blotted out of the book of life because they repented of their repentance and a greater judgment fell upon them. But we are to shine as lights in a crooked and in a perverse world. That's our challenge. That's our obligation. That's our opportunity. That's our purpose. That's our joy. Is it your joy? to shine as a light in this crooked and perverse nation in which we live. May that be your perspective. May that be mine. Let's not get beat down by the culture of the day. Let's not run and hide from it. Let's not invite it into our living room, into our families. Let's protect the children. Let's do all we can to preserve truth and preserve the way of God in our communities, in our families, in our churches. Let's be aware of the enemy. He's subtle. He's almost imperceptible at times. And let's be on guard. My prayer is, dear ones, as we gather our hearts together here at camp, and as we think about the, the books of the law, as we think about the books of works and the book of life, that we bring it home very personally in our own lives 
and we carry it forth out of this place in the coming days and coming weeks and months and even years of our lives. Let's reflect on this teaching that we've been so privileged to have this week with the new knowledge that we have and the new awareness, the acuity of our awareness, may it be that there is an enemy waiting at the gates. And it is up to us to be God's soldiers, be the soldiers of the cross, to wage that battle so that not one of our own will be lost. Amen.